Go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Um, we finished up Romans chapter 11 last week. So we're, we're going to be taking a short break from the, the book of Romans, uh, the month of December. The, the last two Sundays of December, uh, the, the 18th is going to be our, our cantata Sunday. And then the very next Sunday will be the 25th. And we'll have a special Christmas service that morning. By the way, on the 25th, there, there'll just be a morning worship service and not Sunday school or ABF on Christmas Day. Uh, but we will have a special service there. And including the night before Christmas Eve, there's a, we'll have a Christmas Eve service as well. So the last two Sundays of the month are taken for the cantata and the Christmas Day service. These next uh, two Sundays... Uh, I will be uh, speaking on the issue of uh, eldership. What are the qualifications of an elder and what do elders do? What is their ministry and, and calling and so forth? <clears throat> well, you might wonder, well, why teach on this now at, at this point? Well, for one thing, it, this is a natural break point in the book of Romans. We've gone through chapter 11. Chapter 12 starts a whole new section uh, dealing with some different things, uh, basically the application of all that has been led up to. So it's a good time to break if you're going to take a break in Romans, uh, at Romans 12. But also, um, just to remind you, back in October, uh, the elders had recommended uh, Pastor uh, Jeremy Kidder as an elder, uh, believing that he fit all the uh, qualifications of an elder and uh, would, would uh, make a, a good elder. So uh, he was recommended to you. But in the process, before we got to the time of actual the, um, the business meeting, there were some questions that came up. Uh, uh, for one thing, wasn't he an elder already? Um, and that's, I can see why people would wonder that. Uh, on the other hand, there were questions like, why would he want to be both a pastor and an elder? Um, as if they were two very different um, areas of, uh, like, like dividing the government into the executive branch and the legislative branch or something. Why would you want to do both? You know, it's, uh, other questions are, were on, well, what does an elder do? What, what does this mean as far as function? Uh, but I think the thing that caught our attention most were some questions about qualifications. What are the qualifications of an elder? And is, is this or that matter or counter? And it became apparent to us that um, there was some uh, degree of misunderstanding about what the, what the biblical qualifications for eldership are. And uh, so you remember back at that time perhaps that... Um, uh, Greg Sweet, our chairman of the elders, said, we're, we're, we're going to back off for this now because it, it looks like we have uh, just assumed too much of you, of, that we're on the same page and so forth. And it, it looks like there needs to be some teaching on this topic. What is an elder? What are the qualifications for an elder? And uh, just to make some clarifications of... Here's what the Bible says about that. Um, 
And I'm excited about it because I see it as a, this is a real teachable moment in the life of our church. Here, uh, an issue has been raised and some questions raised, and, and that's great because it services. We need some, some teaching, some understanding from the word of what does it say about who an elder is or what they do and so forth. So the next two Sundays, we're going to spend time t- today mostly on the qualifications. Next week, more on the practical questions of uh, what are elders charged with from the Bible and how does that work out in the life of our church here? How do elders relate to one another and the congregation and the staff and all those kinds of things? And um, anticipating that in just two weeks, we probably won't answer all your questions. There may still be some lingering questions. Uh, what we're going to do next Sunday uh, is combine our worship, I mean, our ABF time together, have the adult classes and the youth class here together to just have a kind of a discussion time about it. We'll have the elders come up and field questions from you, maybe some things we haven't uh, talked about or maybe we're unclear we need to give some more explanation about or something just to make sure we answer all the questions that you might have and that there's a real understanding that we're all on the same page as far as what the scriptures teach and all that we we want to give it every chance we can for all that to happen and so even in these next couple weeks as you might be thinking about follow-up questions of something i've said today or or something, maybe jot those down and hold those for next Sunday at, at the uh, discussion time. Okay, so, um, so today we're going to be looking at what an elder is and what the qualifications for an elder are. Uh, so first of all, what is an elder? Uh, we begin with Old Testament background of this, the word for elder, and the Hebrew word for elder means literally fully bearded. And uh, has a reference to men of uh, mature age. Um, uh, so, it, <laughs> let's not go there. <laughs> you, you may remember too. So that's just the basic meaning of the word, and it, it was their way of saying a mature man or a man of mature years. And um, when Moses needed help leading Israel, and Jethro, his father-in-law, said, you need help, you need others to come alongside. And 70 leaders were chosen, uh, 70 leaders of the tribes of Israel were chosen, and those were called elders. Those men who led their families and their communities. And what did those men do? They, they served as Judges and magistrates, they decided things for people. Instead of Moses having to be the judge and arbiter of every decision, those men took over the, the function of, of making decisions, making judgments on behalf of the people. People would bring their problems. Should we do this or that? Who's right or wrong in this case? And the, the elders would judge those things. Um, later on, as they settled the promised land, the leaders of the towns, as they settled, were called elders and you, you in any town you could find the elders of the city or town sitting at the city gate where they would uh, um, discuss matters of the city and people could bring a problem to them and they would help them figure that out 
Boaz in the book of Ruth, for instance, when he wanted uh, her hand and the rest of her, went to the elders at the city gate and, and uh, had them help him work through the process so it was done rightly. So elders served in that kind of a role as, as leaders and helping make decisions and that sort of thing. So that's how the idea kind of grew in the Old Testament. And the general idea by the time we get to the New Testament is that these are mature, respected men who are leaders of their families and the community. Now we get to the New Testament background for this word elder as we use it in the church today. It seems that it is the best word that could have been used for church leaders in the early church. Remember that most of the early church was Jewish, especially at the very beginning, right? I mean, they were all Jewish. And then even as they expanded, Paul went to the synagogues first and so forth. So there was a huge Jewish element. And so having a term that something they related to would, would be helpful and logical. But other terms that they used for what we might think of as religious leaders just wouldn't quite do it. Uh, like there are some negative connotations like what about calling them Pharisees or, or scribes? Can you imagine us having a note in our bulletin we're, we're having a meeting of the Pharisees this Wednesday? I mean, wow, I wouldn't want to go to church that had a group of Pharisees with all the negative connotations. So see, that, was, that term was pretty loaded negatively and scribes pretty much the same way, although it was, that should have been more neutral. On the other hand, more positive side, they weren't really prophets or priests either. Uh, and so those kind of terms wouldn't have worked. And it seems that the word elder was the best, most neutral word to use for a church leader in the early church then. Um, now, as we read the New Testament, we find... Uh, four or five different words depending on your translation for the person who occupies this office that we will call elder so what I want to do is take a quick look at these di different words first of all the word elder is the Greek word presbyteros that's where we get the Presbyterian church from that's, they use this idea of eldership as a basis for their um, how they do church so presbyterian comes from this very word presbyteros and again just like the hebrew counterpart this word just means an older man now if you're in first peter 5 you will see how that's used in in first peter 5 5 likewise you younger people submit yourselves to your elders Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, because of this particular context in which this word uh, presbyteros is used, it's referring to an older person because there's a contrast. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders, to the, the older people. Um, and that's the way we're used to using that, that word elder, you know, respect your elders kind of a thing. So we still use it in that way. 
But also the word elder came to refer not only to mature age, but to an office. And what's interesting about this passage in 1 Peter 5 is that it uses the word both ways. If you go back to verse 1, it is using the word presbyteros, or elder, to refer to an office. 1 Peter 5, 1, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock, and so forth. So it's obvious from verse 1 that he's using this term elders to refer to a group of people who are leading the church. So it's interesting, in this passage he uses it both to refer to age and to refer to an office. So you've got to tell by the context what's being talked about which one of those he's referring to. Um, most often when we find this word presbyteros, it's referring to the office, but not always. So in verse 1, it's um, the elders who are among you are the, uh, uh, the office of elders. Now, evidently also in the early church, this term elder came to be more associated with mature men than older men. The two are not always the same. You can have older men who are not very mature. Um, and you can have younger men who are mature. And so this came to refer more to mature men than older men. And that really becomes a key for understanding qualifications for eldership. Um, one of the evidences that it was not necessar necessary to be an older man is uh, from 1 Timothy 4.12 where Timothy is being told by Paul, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity. So Timothy, who is given charge over uh, establishing elders there at Ephesus, was evidently a young man. Let no one despise or look down on your youth. Same would be true for Titus. And it's interesting that the Qualifications for elders are found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Both of those guys were young protégés of Paul. And um, now they were uh, quite likely exceptions to the rule. It's not saying that this is now transitioning into where elders had to be young men uh, because the very fact that Paul is having to say something about their age shows that they were exceptional. So, elders will probably be uh, uh, mature men and, and older men, but it doesn't exclude younger men who are also mature, I guess is the point. Now, number three, the word uh, bishop, um, episkopos. Guess what church name we get from episkopos? Episcopalian, yeah, exactly right. And uh, episkopos is the Greek word here. Epi means over, and skopos is to scope, like the telescope 
Scopos is to see. So epi over scopos see. A, a bishop is an overseer. Someone who oversees the, the affairs of the church. Now the next word, uh, number four on your list here, the word overseer is also episcopos. And it means overseer. The, the reason is in the English translation, sometimes that same word is translated bishop and sometimes it's translated overseer. But in the Greek, it's the same, it's the same word. We see that in, um, in uh, 1 Peter 5, 2, where he's talking to the elders and he's giving them a command, an imperative shepherd, the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers or exercising oversight that's, that's the uh, episkopos there and it's in a participial form here it's why it's kind of hard to translate but serving as overseers or exercising oversight the next word is uh, shepherd 1 Peter 5 2 uh, the, the first word of the, the sentence there in it's a, in a verb form as an imperative is shepherd the flock of God which is among you. So they serve as shepherds and uh, there are a number of times that elders are also called shepherds as we'll see. It has to do with the function of overseeing as a shepherd. Um, number six, the word pastor. Look at uh, first, uh, excuse me, Ephesians 4.11. Okay, Ephesians four eleven. And also note in your notes, uh, I've, I've put to the side of these words the, the Greek word for those, and you see number five for shepherd, uh, poimino. Look at it in number six, poimino.s It's the, it's the same word. So some just like episkopos could be translated bishop or overseer. Poimenos could be translated shepherd, or in this case, it was translated pastor. Uh, Ephesians 4.11, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And the word there, pastors, is just the word shepherds. Every place else in the New Testament, that word is translated shepherd or shepherds. This is the only place where the word pastor occurs. And in fact, in the ESV, it even translates it correctly as shepherds. And so, if it were not for this mistranslation in Ephesians 4.11, where way back it got translated as pastor, we would not even have the word pastor in our vernacular. But because of that, this is the only place where the word appears. Now, the point I'm going to get to here is that a pastor is nothing other than an elder. That elders and pastors are the same thing. That a pastor is a shepherd, overseer, 
elder. And an elder is a bishop, overseer, pastor. It's, they're all the same thing. Um, it, and you have to think about this. If, since this is the only place in the entire New Testament where the word pastor appears, if it were a separate office, like you had deacons, elders, and pastors, well, why isn't that talked about in the rest of Scripture? It would seem to be kind of an important thing, wouldn't it? When you look at the greetings to church leaders in the different epistles, like uh, Philippians 1.1 says, to the overseers and deacons at Philippi. To the overseers and deacons, those two groups. Why, why not pastors? Because there was no separate group of pastors. They were included in the overseers. When you look at the qualifications for church leaders... 1 Timothy 3, for example, gives two offices, elders and deacons. There are no qualifications given anywhere in Scripture for the office of a pastor because there is no separate office for a pastor. A pastor is an elder. So what we typically call and refer to as pastor is really just an elder. I view myself as an elder of in this church a co-elder with the other men who serve on the elder board I am not above them I'm not beneath them I am a group with them and, and we serve and minister and lead together now I happen to have the privilege of being able to do this as my full time job I actually get paid for this and and I love serving in this capacity. And I don't despise the word pastor. In fact, I, I like that word pastor because it reminds me it's really the word shepherd. When I hear that word pastor, I think of the, the word shepherd. Uh, I'm, I'm supposed to shepherd the flock. Um, but, but really, if we're to think precisely biblically about this, I'm really an elder and not something separate from that. Um, now these are, as we looked at these four or five words depending on your translation, there are different words for the same office. Look at um, uh, Acts 20, for instance. Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> and remember, we already saw that in uh, 1 Peter 5. The elders who are among you, I exhort to uh, serve uh, and to shepherd the church of God, serving as overseers. So in two verses, Peter uses elders, shepherd, and overseer, all referring to the same office. In Acts 20, verse 17 says... Uh, then we went ahead to the ship and sailed... Uh, I'm at the wrong place. From, excuse me, 2017, from Miletus, he, uh, meaning the Apostle Paul, sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. So he's going to be meeting with the elders of the church. He has a final message for them. And verse 28, here, here's a significant part of that message. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit 
has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit, this is a spiritual thing, this is the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You are elders and he's made you overseers. So shepherd, so we have those three different terms, oversee, shepherd, elder in this same passage. Um, they're also always viewed as plural. Never read of a situation with a church with a single leading elder, but they're always plural. First uh, Peter 5, the elders who are among you. Uh, even in Acts 14.23 when Paul was finishing his first missionary journey traveling back to the churches he had established and it says that we established elders, plural, in every city. So a church in every town that they went through and as they came back there were a plurality of elders that they established. A group of men to, to lead the church. So they're always always viewed as elder you'll never find a case of a single elder leading a church now let's get to the uh, the qualifications first timothy chapter three is going to be our main text for this first timothy three and we'll, we'll be going one through seven these are the qualifications about um, these are the qualifications for elders what would a man have to look like if if you were going to examine their life for them to pass the test for being an elder now just a word about these qualifications um, is really intended for all men in the church not just certain men Uh, it isn't as if men who are not elders were free to be greedy, contentious, violent drunkards. But if you wanted to be an elder, you had to behave yourself. It, that's not the idea. It's that every man in the church, and every woman for, for that matter, is to run after these things. Um, and, and certain ones will come to the fore. To, to borrow an example from a friend of mine, it's as if God said, all right, I want all of you to run in this direction as fast as you can. Ready? Go. Run in that direction. Now, in the, um, uh, of those who are obedient and running in that direction, eventually some will emerge as the front runners, right? If you had a thousand people all running in that direction, some will emerge toward the front. Now we're talking not about physical running. Uh, if we were, I could blast to the front of the pack for five seconds. But we're talking about spiritual running, running a spiritual race, and going full heart after what God has said all of us are to pursue this that God has put before us now in the spiritual race it's different because it's not based on your, your physical capabilities it's based on your character and your heart for God and I know 
I, I was telling uh, Bonnie Moyer that I was preparing this service, uh, this message on elders, and thought of her this week. She was, how would you think of me about elders? Well, I was thinking about this spiritual race, and if I was in a spiritual race, and Bonnie's in that race, I'd be behind her. That's what I was thinking. I'd have some catching up to do, and I'd be behind a lot of you. But the idea is we would, as we're running in this race, the, the race set before us, it's as if Paul is here saying in that race there are some who, are, who come to the fore they're all pursuing these things but some who are having more success than others of those pick from those to, to lead the church um, well, what are the, some of the markers that a man is running well since it's not a physical race, it's a spiritual race, how do, how do we gauge that? What are the markers of that? Well, 1 Timothy 3 gives us markers to look at. Chapter 3, verse 1. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop or overseer, he desires a good work. So first of all, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Several things just to note quickly here. First of all, it's talking about men. If a man desires this, the office of uh, being an elder is not open to women. It is a man. I know that if you have ESV, it translates, if anyone... That's because uh, in Greek it's the indefinite um, pronoun, tis. But unlike our indefinite pronoun in English, which could be either male or female, masculine or feminine, in Greek it is a masculine indefinite pronoun that means it should be translated any man, not just any one. Plus, the rest of this passage, Paul always uses masculine pronouns like he and his and him. So this is an office which is only open to men. Second thing he says about it, if a man desires the position or office of bishop, overseer. And this is, um, may seem strange. Is it okay to desire this? I mean, if someone said, came up to us and said, I desire to be an elder. What would you think of that? Is this self-promotion or, you know, what is, what's this guy doing? And when we remember that Jeremiah 45 says, do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. We're not to seek great things for ourselves. We're certainly not to seek to elevate, promote our own selves. And if anyone saw this as a, a means of self-promotion, then they're disqualifying themselves already. Of course, that is not what eldership is all about. It's not about promoting self anyways. As this verse goes on to say, if, if a man desires the office of a bishop or overseer, he desires what? Not self-promotion. He desires a good work. 
He's desiring to serve. He's desiring to minister. He's desiring to labor on behalf of others. He desires a good work. And what that work is, is defined for us at the end of verse 5. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So that in a phrase is what the elder is going to be doing. He, to take care of the church of God. If a man desires the office of a bishop or overseer, he desires the good work of giving his life for taking care of the flock of the church of God. That's what really the desire is. If any of you men have such a desire, let me or other elders know. Uh, it, I think there are a number of you who uh, would qualify to be elders. That we don't go around shaking the tree trying to get people to sign up. If you have a God-given desire to serve as an elder, to, to minister to this church body, to serve them in that way, let us know. And we will help you discern whether the rest of these qualifications are fit for you. And yeah, it's a humbling kind of a thing to submit yourself to this process of, do you think I fit these moral character qualities but let us know okay so he desires a good work now comes the uh, the first of the list of qualifications a bishop or an overseer then must be blameless well it at first blush that looks like that leaves us out all of us must be blameless or some translate this I think better above reproach well this is this is not talking about perfection this is talking about your reputation in the church and the community it's not that a man is without sin otherwise there could be no earthly leaders at all ever right because none of us is without sin the idea is that um, and the idea behind this word translated blameless or above reproach is that an accusation would not stick that is people might accuse you of something but it just doesn't fit you doesn't doesn't stick to you like uh, if someone were to say well this person is a liar well, it doesn't mean that that person never told a lie in their whole life for them to pass this test. But it does mean if someone says this person is a liar, you would say, there's no way. No, that is not true of them at all. That, that accusation wouldn't stick. They are above that reproach. Um, so blameless or above reproach is not perfection but has to do with reputation and a person is, is moving towards Christ's likeness and it is evident to others. Be, also because this is the first word on the list it, 
it probably serves as like an umbrella statement for the rest of the terms here. That is, all the other things that are talked about are indications of whether or not a person is above reproach. The next thing listed is, uh, verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. Now it's important for us to think about the, what this literally means because uh, this can be and has been misinterpreted and handled. It really means a one-woman man. He is a one-woman man. He's, he's a man with, with all his heart and devotion directed at one woman. Doesn't necessarily mean that he's never been divorced. But it means that in this present time, in this, as people would look at his life now and, and view him and think, is he, does he love his wife only? Is she the only woman in his life? Is he a one woman man? Now, you could have a man who's been married uh, 50 years. And he still has a wandering eye. That is not a one woman man. Or a man who is flirtatious or open to affairs or whatever. Still married but he is not a one woman man in his heart. Right? And so it has to do with the reputation again of this person. If, as you look at them are they devoted to their wife? Is that the one woman in their life a one woman man not flirtatious second you uh, must be temperate or that could be translated vigilant this has to do with uh, mental sobriety or watchfulness this is a careful person really uh, the, the idea is a balanced judgment Someone who's not going off the deep end one way or another. They have a kind of a balanced judgment. They're, they're temperate or it's like saying moderate in all things. Uh, the next word is sober-minded or prudent. Some translations say self-control. The word here is made up of two Greek words. The first is sound and the second is mind. So it's someone who, who is of a sound mind. It doesn't mean simply that they're not crazy, that they're of a sound mind, but that they, they think clearly that their mind is controlled by the Holy Spirit and truth instead of the whims of the flesh. The next term is of good behavior or respectable. The word for that is cosmion, where we get our word cosmos. So, we, you know, you think of the outer space as the cosmos, it, which has to do with order, uh, the, uni the order of the universe. That's the, our cosmos. It's also um, where we get the word cosmetics, because it means to bring order out of chaos, is what cosmetics literally means because cosmos is the, the order bring, bring something to order so bring order out of chaos yeah but the idea behind it is having a well ordered life 
of, of good behavior, respectable person, a well-ordered life, someone who does not act out of order. Uh, someone who would not be an embarrassment to the church because they're acting strange or something. Next word is hospitable. And this is probably not what you normally think of as hospitable. If you, if you think of a hospitable person, you're probably thinking of someone who um, has people over to their home often and provides meals or, or goodies or place to stay or whatever. Uh, might have friends over, play a game, watch a movie, study the Bible, discuss scripture, whatever. That's not what this is about. This word hospitable is literally love of strangers. Philozenos, love of strangers. Now it's one thing, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you love those who love you, well, don't the Gentiles do the same thing and tax collectors? But this is loving people you don't even know. This is being hospitable to people that you have, it's not tit for tat, I'll have you over, then you have me over, and this is, you have no expectation of maybe ever seeing them again, but you are ministering to them. Hospitable. Love of strangers. Good thing about having uh, you guys over to my house is that um, it's still having strange people over. <laughs> All right. Next one is <laughs> able to teach. Able to teach. Now, what stands out about this one, it is the only qualification that relates to giftedness or function. All the other qualifications have to do with character qualities. This one alone has to do with some kind of giftedness or function, able to teach. Because what was so desperately needed in the early church and is still desperately needed today is for godly men to hold fast to the word of God and to pass it on intact to others. As we see next week in uh, the, the message on the role of elders, uh, they are to be guardians of the truth and faithful teachers of the truth. And so that's why in this whole list of character qualities, there's one that has to do with ability, and that is able to teach. You, that has to be part of it does not mean they have to be great orators or flowery speakers or skilled in rhetoric. It just means they're able to teach. The next thing here in, in uh, 1 Timothy 3 is not given to or not addicted to wine. Now, interesting thing about the way that is said is it's... Uh, doesn't say that they never partake of it, but that they're not addicted to it or not given to it. 
It has not become a controlling issue in their life. It's not that a, an elder could never have a glass of wine with a meal or something. But it is not to be something which controls their life in any way. If it becomes a stumbling block or, um, or anything else, then uh, that is a disqualification. Uh, next is they're not violent literally not a bruiser or a striker not the kind of person who lashes out in violence and hits other people not a bruiser or a striker um, the next one is not greedy for money it's, I have it in uh, parentheses in your notes I believe because uh, it's not in the earliest Greek text and there's something very like it at the end of the verse anyways uh, King James says uh, they're not greedy for filthy lucre whatever that is when I was uh, going through my first ordination process I, I was grilled by the, uh, the board and staff at the church where I was serving as an associate pastor and then then they brought in a group of men outside of our church who were ordained to, to grill me as well. And then the final part of it was uh, that I had to appear before the congregation and answer questions from them. And uh, uh, there was a dear old, uh, old black lady named Delcy Madkins. Uh, and she had a question for me. Gary, are you after filthy lucre? <laughs> I said, no, Delcy, I only want clean lucre. <laughs> and she just burst out laughing, and we became fast friends. But uh, I always thought that was, that was interesting. Or, so not, not greedy for money but we'll see that in a moment in a different way uh, but gentle and you see how the last if you take out that not greedy for money the last one would be uh, not violent and then the next one but gentle so it also appears it's probably the most most likely uh, translation now the word the word gentle here the idea behind this is strength under control. It was often used of generals or judges who had the right and the power to crush others but refrained from it. You can imagine a general, for instance. He's won the battle. He has the right. He has the authority. He can just crush the citizens of this town and he, he tells his commander, I decided not to do it. The, the word they would use of that, of that um, general then would be this word translated gentle. It's the idea of strength under control. It's the word that Jesus used of himself in, in one of his few descriptions of himself, you know, take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle. Paul used this word in 
Philippians 4, 5, he says, let your gentleness be made known to all. Philippians 4, 5. Let your gentleness be made known to all. How do you want to be remembered? How do you want people to think about you? We are so prone to stand up for ourselves and our rights and protect ourselves that we are anything but gentle. Paul says, let this be known about you by everyone. You should have this, this reputation. You are gentle. It's one of the qualifications for an elder. Can you imagine a, an elder who is not gentle, but the opposite of this, a violent person who didn't mind squashing someone. I have seen the need for this gentleness time after time and put into action by our own elders here as we discuss problems in the church and maybe something that a person is going through and just the compassion of how do we minister to this person? Not how do we crush them? How do we get them? How do we minister to them? That comes from a heart of gentleness. So needed. Next one is not quarrelsome or contentious. Not someone who's always arguing for their own way and contending about things. Number 14, not covetous. Literally, not a lover of money. As, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, Verse 9, if you turn over a couple of pages, 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, so forth. The love of money leads to ruin, would lead to ruin in the life of, a, of an elder and in the life of a church. So, not a lover of money. Number 15 is one who rules his own house well. Now, this word rule could also be translated manage. And again, the word rule is probably something different than you're used to thinking about. It's not, not rule like with an iron fist, but the, the word translated rule here is literally to stand before. Dave, it's like your word... Uh, antihistamine that you're going to do for your class today. Histamine is to stand. You have anti. This word is prohistamine, to stand before. So the, the idea of standing before, one who rules well or manages, who stand before his house, is, is one who is leading and guiding in, in a sense like I'm standing before you today uh, to, to lead you and to guide you into uh, scripture here but the word came not only to be associated with leading and guiding but protecting 
the idea of standing before like a shepherd would stand before his flock to, to protect them from the wolves and to try to beat them away, to stand before us, to, to protect. So the, the idea of ruling your own house means to stand before them, to lead them, to guide them, to protect them. It's not someone who rules with an iron fist, but someone who rules compassionately and rightly and biblically. And so someone who rules his own house, why is this so important? Here Paul is starting to give us reasons for these things, starting with this one. For if one does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So those two things are seen in parallel. Taking care of the church of God is like taking care of a family. And the first test is the family. Does this guy, how does he relate to his wife and children? Is he a loving leader in his home? It's that kind of person who would be likely to be a loving leader in the church, to take care of the church. So you see, the home becomes a very important uh, determiner. One who rules well his own home so he can take care of the church. And actually, that's that one phrase to take care of the church of God is, is the purpose of an elder in one phrase, to take care of the church of God. Number 16, uh, he is not a novice. The word is neophyte. You probably heard that before. And it means literally not newly planted. Not someone who's newly planted. Or the idea is not a new Convert, not a new believer. Someone who's had some time to grow and be tested and to learn and all those things. And, and again, the reason given for it is, verse 6, not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. The devil fell because of his pride and he lifted himself up. And so if you bring a new believer into this position of being an elder he could fall into the same kind of temptation and finally uh, a good testimony testimony to those who are outside um, verse 7 moreover he must have a good testimony among those who are outside lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil so it's not only having a good reputation while that guy is in church you know maybe you can behave for an hour or two on Sunday morning and everybody look at you and say hey he's a pretty good guy but how does he do the rest of the week out in the community so he needs to have a good testimony to those who are outside and, and again because uh, he could fall into the reproach and snare the devil if not now there are two must haves here in this passage they they kind of anchor the passage in fact serve like bookends to it the, the beginning and the ending of the passage both contain must haves verse 2 a bishop or an overseer then must be blameless that's the first one and then the last one is verse 7 the end of this list Moreover, he must have a good testimony. So beginning and end must 
be above reproach, must have a good testimony. I believe those things are talking about the same thing. They're serving like bookends. Those are the two must-haves. Those are the, those are the, um, the things to look for, those character qualities. Uh, we obviously don't have time to look at Titus 1 today. But I just want to go quickly through what is not on the list. Some some surprising things are not on the list. For instance, giftedness, either natural giftedness or spiritual giftedness, is not in this list. The the one area of giftedness that is mentioned is teaching. And even then, it's not to be a gifted teacher, but simply able to teach. All the other things have to do with character. It's all about a man's character. Character not giftedness second area that is left out of the list is areas of of business leadership something that people often in the the west think of in terms of who should be leaders like there's no mention of administration or organization or finance or vision casting or any of those things and it's not that administration and organization are bad things they're good things and and we're blessed to have on our board of elders several men who are really gifted in these things too it's not because of that that they are qualified to be elders those just happen to be some extras that we are grateful for so they're not bad things but they're they're not qualifications another thing it's not on the list that people sometimes look for is personality type like how outgoing is this person are they gregarious or not that sort of thing that's not on the list body type or appearance is not on the list remember when uh, Samuel was choosing king of Israel and everyone wanted Saul because he was head and shoulders above the rest and looked like he would be a good king to put forward doesn't he look like a king and then when he, he failed and God sent Samuel to Jesse's house to pick out the next king and Samuel wanted to pick the the oldest who, man, he was a good example of uh, what a a virile man. He would make a good king. No, not him. And on down the list until they got to the runt of the litter. David. Him. It's not based on outward appearance and God said at that point because I, the Lord, do not look on the outward appearance, but on the heart. And that's what God is telling. It's not based on how tall or short or thick or thin or handsome or homely a person may be. But who are they on the inside? So let's say a a man could stand to lose a few pounds and needs to develop some organizational skills, might benefit from being more outgoing, fine all those things may be true but none of them and not even all of them collectively have anything to do with the biblical qualifications of whether that person should serve as an elder it is is this a godly man successfully running the spiritual race the bottom line in Hebrews thirteen seven, which we won't take time to look at is is we are to follow those who are faithful to the word in their life and teaching. That's it.
Are they faithful to the word in their life and teaching? As we prepare for communion, I'd like to keep your Bibles open. Go to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. And I'd like those who are serving communion to come on forward. The rest of us turn to Acts 20, 28. The verse we looked at a little bit earlier and uh, we'll see again next week, Acts 20, 28, very foundational verse. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. A reminder to us all, and whenever I read that passage, I think especially of of me as an elder that this is not my church this is his church he purchased you and at what price with his own blood which he purchased with his own blood and we're going to remember that today we're going to commemorate that in this Lord's Supper We invite you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, to partake with us. If you're not, or if you are out of fellowship with the Lord and need to straighten something out, then then simply withhold from partaking of it. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And now we are going to take bread.
Mike, would you lead us in a prayer of thanks for the body that was given? When he had given thanks, he, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner also, he took the cup after supper. Now we are going to take the cup.
Lord, how we thank you for this, this cup, this remembrance, this emblem of your sacrifice for us, that you purchased us with your own blood, that we might be yours forever. We, th we thank you for this greatest gift of all, in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And pass the um, cups to the aisle and encourage you since uh, we went over our time quite a bit today um, not to dawdle too long with your coffee and donuts but get to your classes as soon as you can I know the teachers would appreciate that God bless you